There's some evidence that the Garden of Eden was on a hill. And we know, of course, that there God communed with Adam and Eve. On Mount Ararat, God established His covenant with Noah. And after that devastating flood, Noah offered there on Ararat a sacrifice to the Lord. Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah where God intervened and provided a substitute sacrifice for Isaac, Genesis 22. God descended upon Mount Sinai, gave His law to Israel and formed her into His chosen nation in the book of Exodus. Having conquered the promised land, the Israelites came into the land and they announced the curses on Mount Ebal and the blessings on Mount Gerizim. Jesus was transfigured on an unnamed mountain. And Jesus ascended from heaven into heaven from the Mount of Olives. Now there's nothing uniquely sacred about elevated places, and the Bible makes that clear as well. But God routinely used mountaintops as places from which to reveal Himself to His people. And so we speak of the mountaintop experience, some unique event, and we find this rooted in Scripture. And it is no surprise then that the Bible, re- that Bible readers, it's no surprise to us that God would identify a mountaintop as ground zero for His mission to redeem sinful humanity and the curse that is placed upon this earth. In our series tracking the theme of the city, we have witnessed the bold rebellion of man's city against God. This plays out quite consistently in the early chapters of the Bible. But as we further anticipate God's mission to form a city for the glory of His name and the outworking of His saving purposes, we find today another mountaintop. Developing the theme of the city of God, God identifies a specific people and we've chased this for some weeks. After the fall in Genesis 3, God promises to crush Satan's head through a representative of the offspring of a godly lineage of people to trace us, to help us trace that person and find that place in history. And so we're taken through Adam to Abel, Abel martyred, and then to Seth, to Noah, to Shem, to Abraham. His offspring blessing the world. But as certainly as God identifies a people by whom He will crush Satan's head, He also identifies a place as central to His saving mission. We noted this last week from Deuteronomy chapter 12. We note here the the many references in this section of Scripture to the place, the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes. Note that as well for later. But He will put His name and make His habitation there in that place. And there you may go. And there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. When He gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you will live in safety, then to the place that in the Lord, that in the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell there, there, You shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes and the like. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any other place that you see. These hills around Israel where the pagans worship their false gods. Don't do that. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings there, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. The book of Deuteronomy is written to prepare the nation to enter the promised land. And there are, as we noted last week, 23 times that this place is referred to in the book of Deuteronomy. That God will dwell there. That God will put His name there. Be ready for this. Be looking for this. Moses says to the people of Israel as they prepare. And there is, in a sense here, a theme of Eden that plays out again. 
a place where God will be, a place that God will establish, a place where you will walk in relationship with Him. Time does not provide a full development of the inching progress that Israel made in identifying this place, but you're looking on the screen at one of the evidences of genuine revelation. People can't keep these ideas together for 500 years. They can't cooperate through one generation, let alone that many. But for hundreds of years, Israel is thinking, where's the place? Where's the place? Now, they would have been easily satisfied by saying, well, the place is where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's where the tabernacle is. But those inquiring minds had to read this text and say, where is it? Where's the place? What are we looking for here? We have time only for brief reference to the major pieces of the story that through hundreds of years brings Israel to the place. As we know, God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. There was the crossing of the Red Sea led by the glory cloud leading the nation through the sea and then on to Mount Sinai. God's glory rested on the top of Mount Sinai and here Israel receives God's law and is formed into His nation, a nation of His unique possession. God's glorious shining presence then comes down off of Mount Sinai and inhabits the tabernacle at the base of the mountain and Israel goes from there toward the promised land. God's presence among His people, again, an Edenic theme, a theme from the garden. Israel eventually enters and occupies the promised land. And after many years of trials and futility and rebellion, God mercifully gives to Israel a king from the tribe of Judah. Note the top line here on the screen. God will choose out of your tribes. Will that be the Levites? Will that be the tribe of Joseph, Ephraim, or Manasseh? as the one who rescued Israel in Egypt? Will this be the tribe of, of Reuben, the firstborn? Which tribe? Which place? Where will it be? Well, as time passes, King David, chosen by God, captures the city of Jabus and makes it the seat of his kingdom. You see on the, the graphic on the left there, just the tracing out the early wall of Jerusalem and David's city. And then in the graphic to the right, notice two places, that lower level there, that's the city of David. So we've been saying the cities in ancient days were not large places. Just a small place surrounded by a wall and fairly secure there with the valley on three sides. To the north, we see this elevated area. And David captures this city of Jabus and makes it the center of his kingdom, the seat of his throne. And once safely settled in the city, David sinned against God by numbering his troops, an act of arrogant self-dependence and self-promotion. Here David takes a page from Cain. He takes a page from Babel. And he says, I am great. I have a city here of my name in some sense. There's a lot that goes on with the numbering of the, tri of the uh, troops and an understanding of how that played into the, to the arrogance of ancient kings. But God came down hard upon David. And he judged Israel with a terrible plague. And many Israelites died because of David's sin. The death angel hovered with a drawn sword, as it were, over David's city at the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite as David intercedes in prayer for Israel. So if we could locate it, I'll turn uh, this way here because I'm right-handed. But somewhere in this area, this angel hovers over the city. You just sense the ominous nature of this setting. This angel here ready to come into the city of David and to wipe it out through this plague. Here hovering over the city in a sense with drawn sword. And David pleads for the people. And here at this spot, the plague stops. Right here. Providentially is an outworking of David's sin and God's judgment on the nation. David purchases on this hilltop, right here, a place, the perfect threshing floor. 
You loft up grain on this spot and it's going to blow away quite easily. It's the perfect threshing floor, but David purchases it out of his sin, in his repentance, with a desire to honor the Lord who had disciplined him. David eventually determines then to build here on this hilltop, at this place where the plague was stopped because of his sin, a temple to God, a house in which God's presence will come to dwell permanently. God's presence had been among God's people in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, this hovering, glorious presence of God, objectifying His place among His people. And David says, I want to make this permanent. I want to build a temple on this site. David determines to build a house for God's presence. God needs no house of course. And he revealed that David would not be the one to build it. But God stuns David in 2 Samuel 7 saying that he will build a house for David. And that's not a literal house in which David will live, but a figurative household, a dynasty. There will be a temple on this mount, There will be a king on your throne, your sons reigning from here. I have chosen to work through you and in you and to continue the work of redemption, continue to identify a people, and you, David, your sons will reign here. You have sought to build me a house, I will build you a house. Solomon is born and reigns on David's throne. A son from David's household rises up then and builds the house that David proposed for God. Solomon's temple was constructed on the hilltop where Abraham had offered Isaac over a millennium earlier. And on the spot where David stopped the death angel with his prayers and offered sacrifices of praise to God, on this place, identified by this arrow, somewhere here in this location, Abraham's offering, David's offering, and now the offerings of God's people at the temple that Solomon builds. The book of Second Chronicles records God's blessing upon Solomon and the construction of the temple on Mount Moriah. Now there's an interesting thing that happens here in the recounting of the establishment of this temple that Solomon builds. And that is found in 2 Chronicles 3.1. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, or Arana, two names, same man. That Jebusite, that Gentile, selling this place to David, this place is where the temple is built. What is so interesting about this verse is that this is the only other time that Moriah is used in the Old Testament. It's Genesis 22 where Abraham offers his sacrifice and here, 2 Chronicles 3.1, where the temple is placed on Mount Moriah. Again, the way that ancient texts are written, that is not a mistake. This area could be called several things. It is called Mount Moriah to draw our attention to the significance of this site. Solomon furnishes the temple in 2 Chronicles chapters 4 through 6. He then blesses the people in chapter 6, offering a memorable prayer of dedication that begins at verse 14. In 2 Chronicles 6, verses 18 through 20, we read this from Solomon's prayer of dedication. 2 Chronicles 6 and verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. 
Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. You have set your name here. This is the place prophesied in Deuteronomy 12, for instance, that we've considered. That God is saying, I will put my name there. This is the place, Solomon says. Now the question I ask is, how does he know that? We could say that he understands wherever the Ark of the Covenant is, is the place. But he seems to be saying more than that, and he seems to be investing quite a bit more than that. This is a beautiful, permanent building. This, God, is your place. He's humble. I realize you don't need this house, but this is it. This is the place you've been prophesying through the years. This is it. How does he know that? How can he be certain? In chapter 6, verses 36 through 39, as this prayer continues... Solomon focuses upon the covenant responsibilities. Obedience to the covenant would draw Israel to this elevated site and into God's presence. Disobedience to the covenant would scatter Israel from this hilltop into captivity. Again, the Eden theme of expulsion due to sin. And bring this with you as you read the entire Bible. There's this drawing to the presence of God and in judgment a scattering from the presence of God. Here at this place, Solomon pleads in prayer, is the place you will draw your people to. And the scattered in their sin will come to find you here. Is he right? Is this the place prophesied in Deuteronomy? How do we know that God has led Israel for hundreds of years? I stress it again, for hundreds of years of prophecy. How do we know He has led Israel here? That's 2 Chronicles 7. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. God emphatically declares, this is the place. There's ever a question if your sacrifice is received, this pretty well settles it. Fire from heaven consumes the sacrifice that you've placed on the altar. The glory cloud that escorted Israel out of Egypt and glowed brightly at night. The glory cloud that descended from Mount Sinai and filled the tabernacle. That glory now descends on Solomon's temple and it fills it. And the fire of God consuming the sacrifices as it had at the tabernacle that Moses set up in the wilderness, Leviticus 9, and as it had at the altar of David set up here in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 26. So concentrated was God's presence here, His statement that this is that place. At verse 2 we read, The priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. As God's presence had descended Mount Sinai and come upon the tabernacle, so now it filled this house. And people's response is most fitting. Verse 3, When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. What else would you do? Looking at that pavement where the box says on this graphic, the upper court, the inner court, probably somewhere in that range they're falling down, or perhaps in that great outer court, wherever the people are, they're falling down on their knees, hunched over, face to the pavement, in abject spiritual poverty and humility. God has done this. To take another look at the pavement 
It wasn't a car bombing. That's just a, a graphic showing you inside the, the temple there. But uh, kind of fill that in. It allows you to look on the inside. But there on that pavement, they worship with their faces to the ground. Now that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? In light of such a stunning display of God's power and glory that the people would fall down on the ground out of fear of God and reverence to Him. It makes sense that they would worship at such a time. But what I don't, what doesn't, didn't capture me, I guess, the first time that I read is why say His steadfast love endures forever? Why say that? It would make good sense to cry out, Lord, Your glory is so so great, spare us. Be merciful to us. You are great and greatly to be praised. We fall before You in our sin and our weakness. Spare us from Your glory. Indeed, they may have prayed such prayers as well. But the chronicler records in this response the love of God. They proclaim there this fire consuming the sacrifices, this glory filling the temple and sending the priests out. They declare God's love. God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Why would Israel extol the loyal love of God in light of this powerful display of His glory? I think the reason is a sense of self-identity in history. The reason is that Israel recognizes we do not deserve to be here. The only reason that we are experiencing this mountaintop moment is God's unmitigated love. Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness. Israel rebelled against God in failing to trust His power and enter the promised land a generation in one generation and waiting then through a whole other generation before they were ready. Bringing Israel out of Egypt to Mount Sinai and now to Mount Moriah was an awesome display of God's steadfast love for Israel. Rather than, rather than cursing the nations, this is what Israel deserved. She deserved to curse the nations, not to bless them. But God was fulfilling His purpose to bless Israel by drawing her into His presence in the land and blessing the nations through her here. This is the love of God on display. They don't deserve this. They haven't earned this. But God has been merciful. This mountaintop experience fulfilled prophecy is a clear sign of God's saving grace. Through these hundreds of years, God delivered Israel, brought them here, and this deliverance goes way back. We see it in the Song of Moses. Again, this is just stunning when you put this together and conceive the hundreds of years between... Israel's delivered through the Red Sea. Moses sings, and this is his part of his song. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. You will plant them at the place. O Lord which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. That applies in the present, but there is a prophecy there that is stunning. Now these many generations later, these generations later, these centuries later, here is the place. The moment on the hilltop was secured by God's steadfast love for the good and the joy of His people. And the city of God now had a solid foothold in the land of promise. And that foothold started not with a tower built to man's glory, not with a skyscraper as such, but with a temple filled with God's glory. 
The foothold did not start with man's attempt to please God on self-made terms. It was an approach to God on His terms. And we have sung of that today. In the second movement of this chapter, we look at Israel's sacrifices and praise which ascend to dedicate the temple. So the fire and glory descend to fill it and now sacrifices and praises ascend to the Lord in worship. Verse 4, Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. And the priests stood at their posts, the Levites also with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry opposite them, the priests sounded trumpets and all Israel stood. It would be a beautiful scene, an awesome scene, an awful scene. The smoke of the sacrificial animals ascend in worship. The praise of God's people also ascend. There is music, there is song, there is rejoicing, there is praise to the Lord and His love. Verse 7, And Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, For there he offered the burnt offering and the fat of the peace offerings because the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat. Simply put, there were too many sacrificial animals to offer on the altar. And so apparently they're setting up some temporary altars to handle all of these sacrifices, all of these animals that are given wealth, given away to God in worship. It's an overwhelming response of worship. But these sacrifices were not entirely consumed by the fire. They had an additional purpose, which we read of in verse 8. At that time Solomon held the feast for seven days and all Israel with him, a very great assembly from Lebo Hamath to the brook of Egypt. All Israel with him feasted. That is, these sacrifices were offered in praise to God. And parts were consumed, but the meat was preserved and eaten there as people rejoiced together, fellowship together here in the presence of the Lord. God was in the house. And outside, His people rejoiced as they ate together and fellowship together. This was held over the period of the festival of tabernacles, so Israel is actually camping out around the area coming together and eating together for seven days and praising God together. From Lebo Hamath, the northern stretches of the land, to this brook of Egypt, Wadi Al-Arish, the southern stretch of the land. They came from everywhere, which is why there's so many sacrifices in part. It is a word of praise to the Lord. It is a feeding of the people of God. And they commune there. Verse 9, on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. And on the twenty-third day, on the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel his people. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, all that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. His house, built just next to the temple, God clearly having prospered Solomon in this finishing up with this word of gladness and joy as the place has been found. On Mount Moriah, the glory of the Lord dwelt among His people who approached God in the way that He prescribed. Put it together with the whole Bible. Put it together with Cain and Abel's offerings and sacrifices. Here God has brought His people pointing through these people to this place where now sacrifices are offered on God's terms and on His hill. And there's no tower There's no skyscraper. Situated on this hill is God's temple to bring glory to His name. We have a little bit of that situation at the 
mall in Washington, D.C. Not, not a shopping mall, but the big area around the major places in our nation's capital, you'll find no skyscrapers. There's no towers there that could be built and could be housed with many people and great business could be done there. But the city planners have had set out from the beginning there would be no competition with the monuments that draw attention to our nation's great history. In something of a similar manner, we have that here. No towers, no skyscrapers, just on that hill, the temple of God. It is a place to reverence it, to honor it, to respect it. And the people go home joyful and glad of heart. They've been in the presence of God. They have fellowshiped with God's people. They have rejoiced in God's leading. How could they not celebrate when they think of these hundreds of years of prophetic pointers to this place? The third movement of the chapter is God's name and worship identified with the temple. Then the Lord appeared, verse 12, to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. In a real sense, David had chosen this place, but in another true sense, God had chosen it. We witness here what theologians refer to as compatibilism. The divine sovereignty of God working along with human action. They're not mutually exclusive ideas, but we work in tandem. And God supports that here, saying, this is my house, the place that I have chosen. Verse 13, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. This is the steadfast love of the Lord. My eyes, he says, verse 15, will be open. My ears will be attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. When those prayers are repentant and humble, I will forgive and restore. The way to God is always the way of repentance. God will hold His people accountable for their sins, but God also rejoices to forgive sins. But the path there is always the path of repentance. This is really common. I can see your faces. There's some of you who came into this place when you first found it. You believe this. It is so common to believe that we must approach God by being good. We approach God by getting our act together and being right to enter into His presence. This is flat wrong. The way to God that Scripture lays out is always through repentance. It's not by becoming somebody first. It's by admitting who I am now. And I come through repentance to say I am a sinner. I have broken your law. I do not measure up to your holiness. But hear the heart of God. If my people called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I will hear, I will forgive. That is the God of Scripture. You may come today filled with guilt. You say, I know I'm not ready to stand in the presence of God. Even here in this ancient text, the indicators are there. We come through sacrifice. God is just and does punish sin. You're listening to the wrong voice if you hear from somebody, yes, you're a sinner, but God doesn't care. He doesn't really mind. He does mind. He's a just God, and He will punish every sin that you've ever committed. And He will punish sin you don't know you've committed. He is just. But the beauty is right here. He offers us a sacrifice to stand in our place and to pay the penalty that our sins deserve. There's only one way in. It's to come along the path of repentance. I'm wrong. I've sinned. I've broken the law of God. 
I come to you, God, trusting the sacrifice that you have provided and seeking forgiveness. He forgives. That is who he is by his grace. Seek him today. We don't come with an animal sacrifice. We come with the sacrifice of Christ. But the judgment has fallen. God is just. And he is the justifier of those who trust him in repentant belief. Verse 16, back to the point at hand. Here, in this verse, God speaks most pointedly about this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes, my heart will be there for all time. There's a people and there's a place and that place is here. In Jerusalem, specifically on Mount Moriah. Verse 17, As for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keep my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man to rule Israel. Here is simply obedience to the covenant stipulations that God has given to David, to his sons, follows through. If there is obedience the rewards of the covenant will be realized. Negatively speaking, he then turns in verse 19, but if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land that I have given you and this house that I have consecrated for my name, there it is again, I will cast out of my sight And I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And at this house which was exalted, everyone passing by will be astonished and say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore He has brought all this disaster on them. There is no place like this place. This is the mountaintop in God's saving purposes. It's hallowed ground. It's the place that God prophesied through Moses. It's the place God's presence will reside for all eternity in some way. Here, the city of God finds its foothold. This is no place like Babel, constructed for the glory of man's name, This is ground zero of the city of God, constructed for the glory of God's name. We read this in 2 Chronicles 6. Blessed, this is Solomon's words, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. And I chose no man as prince over my people, Israel. But I have now chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there and I have chosen David to be over my people, Israel. As the Davidic covenant is presented here, there are the blessings, the curses, the responsibilities that result in blessing when there is obedience and in curse when there is disobedience. Clearly, Israel cannot presume upon her position here. The kings of David cannot presume upon their position here. They must walk in obedience to the Lord. God doesn't need this temple. That's made very clear. When we think of how profound it is that this place has been located, that the temple has been built here, that God has been saying through the generations, this is the house. And now they're there. And now God confirms that. Don't take that home, Israel, and think that means you can live however you want to live. If you break the covenant, God will scatter you from this place. This temple, in fact, is not the house of God ultimately, and it can be destroyed. There's really even kind of an ominous prophecy here that if we break God's law, and as Solomon prays in chapter 6, 
And as he indicates here, as God indicates here in in 7.14, there will be disobedience and there will be a departure even from this place. God is not beholden just to this spot and just to Israel in this spot in perpetuity. With disobedience will come a scattering even here. If Israel abandons the light and chooses the darkness, God's glory will depart and He will turn the lights out on Mount Moriah. This sacred place will be desecrated. There's a lot that could be said about the history of Israel even currently on this point. But let me turn it just a little different direction and apply it more directly to us as a church. This is a warning that we need to take to heart. God's promise is that the church will win. His promise is that the gates of hell will never be able to block the work of the risen Christ who is gathering a people together for His name. Nothing will stand in the way of that. Nothing can prevail against the new temple of the living God, the church of Jesus Christ. But that is no guarantee that Jesus will not remove our lampstand if we prove unfaithful to Him. We might maintain our building, we might maintain our name, we might maintain some level of reputation, but God has blown the the flame out. Just as Israel should never say, because God has chosen this place, we are free to live as we choose, so the church of Jesus Christ can never say, the risen Christ has saved us by His grace, and we can do what we want to do with His church. May we be cautioned here on this point kings of Judah were meant to rule the earth for the glory of God, but sadly many of those same kings led Israel astray. 1 Kings 8, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall, this is the Gentiles with the temple, they're going to hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, Hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. This temple on this mount is to draw the Gentiles to God to take the scattered in sin and to bring them to this place in worship, in the presence of the Lord. This is to be the renewal of Eden where people walk with God. But this can all be let go. It can be let go by Israel, and it will be historically let go by Israel as they choose other gods. But the steadfast love of the Lord continues. And we read in the prophets of a Davidic servant who will rule from Jerusalem's throne over the nations of the earth, from this hill forever. And let me just in the moments that we have remaining point in three directions. Think on this. First, as we consider the big picture and the end times. We can start gently, but I think very profoundly with the words of Timothy Keller, he says, the great spiritual conflict of history is not between city dwellers and country dwellers, but is truly a tale of two cities. It is a struggle between Babylon, representing the city of man, and Jerusalem, representing the city of God. The earthly city is a metaphor for human life structured without God, created for self-salvation and self-service and self-glorification. It portrays a scene of exploitation and injustice, but God's city is a society based on His glory and on the sacrificial service to God and neighbor. The final Davidic king will reign in a renewed Jerusalem. And of that city, the circumference will be 18,000 cubits, And the name of the city from that time on shall be this. The Lord is there forever. The Lord is there. That's the name of the city. That's what matters. It's not the literal temple of Solomon. And it's not 
simply a place that is sacred in and of itself. What makes this place sacred, what makes it ground zero for salvation history, is that the Lord is here. And in His mercy, He's put an X on the map and said, it's here. Right here. And this place will be called through eternity, the Lord is here. The history of Jerusalem, as we will see in upcoming weeks, will prove an utter mess due to the infidelities of God's people. The beauty, the glory, the purpose, all to draw the nations here will be sacrificed by sin. Yet Solomon's temple, ground zero of redemption history, is secured. The place is identified. The plan to draw the scattered nations to God achieves a major step here. There will be much more to come. But ultimately, we identify with this place. And as we say this today, we can say, what on earth has it got to do with tomorrow? What's it got to do with my life? This is the grounding of who we are. This is what God is up to in the history of the earth of all humanity, it's this. It's to restore us to His presence. And as I root my little life into this greater story, remember the song that we sang here at the end, I may do nothing that lasts in this life. I may be forgotten. My life is small. We're just a wisp of fog passing. But we root into this. We are locked into solid ground. This is what God is doing. To establish a place for His name. And what we do as small people is to recognize it and root our identity and the stability of our soul in this. Not in your house. Not in the rust bucket on wheels that you're driving around. Not in how people look at your small name. How we look at His name. The Lord is here. So much more to develop as the temple goes away and by God's grace in the days ahead. But let me point secondly to the immediate. As we see the temple sitting on that hill and Solomon's palace there in front, what we're looking at here, when I say immediate, I don't mean now, I mean the scene. Second Chronicles. This scene that you're looking at on the slide. This is beauty out of ashes. This temple site is God's plan all along, but it is secured and purchased as a result of David's sin and failure. Isn't that amazing? Israel's failure indeed is prophesied, as I said in 2 Chronicles 6 in Solomon's prayer. That's no excuse for sin. But it's a reminder that we are dust and God is able to bring beauty out of the ashes. What do you see here? You see a picture of the glory of God. His name resides here. What we're also seeing is the result of David's sin and the mercies of God. This is true of your life. It's not going to find itself on pages of history, but this is true with the people of God. Our sinful failures cause great damage. Our weaknesses, when we don't even try, cause damage. But our sin, as we turn to our own ways and our own righteousness, cause great trouble. But our God is a God of steadfast, loyal, persevering love. And in that there is always hope. And no matter how badly you think you've screwed up your life, and no matter how badly you think you've screwed up other people's lives, We put our hope in a sovereign God who brings beauty out of misery. This is the picture. David's pride and arrogance and sin gives way to the temple of God filled with his glory. Again, no excuse. It doesn't let us sin freely because it's all going to just work out. But it is saying it never in the end rests with us. It rests with a steadfast God. Love of God. So let's talk about in between. The context of that day, the final day, and this scene. But what about now? Just for a few moments. Jerusalem is the city. 
just outside the city walls on a hill called Golgotha or Calvary, a sacrifice of the Lamb of God is made who takes away the sin of the world. And now in Christ where the glory of God dwells, the new temple in which God's glory resides is us. He resides in us, the victors of Christ's sacrifice. He came and He preached peace to you who were far off Gentiles and peace to those who were near Israelites in rebellion against Him. For through Him, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Notice the access. We're drawn in from our scattered positions, drawn to the Father. Verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of what? The household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Second Chronicles 7 just helps us know what on earth Paul's talking about. We, the church of Jesus Christ, now indwelt by that same Spirit, shine forth to the nations of the world, calling them to God. The ultimate good is communing with the Lord. Like the fall in Eden, our sin scatters us from Him. But on this low hill of Golgotha, the crucified Savior purchased the way back to God. And now our task as a church is to shepherd scattered people back to the life-generating light of God's glory in Jesus Christ crucified and risen. What a task is ours, what a joy is ours, and how this will infuse us with a sense of our purpose to join into this greater story, this greater account, and be pointing people to Christ, not to us, not to our church, not to what we can accomplish and how great we are, but to the Lord who is there. And we'll walk with His people through faith. Whose name are you serving? As we see this picture today, how ugly Babel looks. The skyscraper to bring glory to the name of man or the temple of God, the living people of God who serve as the conquest of Christ, this Jerusalem, ultimately Psalm 48, being the source of joy for all the nations. And now we stand, we sing, and we proclaim the joy of the Lord as His holy temple. What privilege is ours. Let's stand together.